Well, folks, good morning. Um, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. And if you're visiting with us this morning uh, for the first time, um, or whether you're kind of returning after a while, or whether you've been overseas for six months or however many months and you're coming back, it's lovely to have you here this morning. We're journeying through the book of Hebrews. Um, and the question that we've been asking is, who do you go to for help? Uh, we need God's help this morning as we come to his word, and I'm going to pray uh, that he would grant it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you describe yourself in the scriptures as a helper, as one who helps. Thank you that we, this morning, as we sit empty-handed with nothing to offer you in ourselves, and yet still you put us in the position of receivers by grace, through your mercy, that you bestow on us um, gift after gift, supremely in the Lord Jesus, um, his, who is your final word. And we thank you that this word this morning speaks of him. And so would you redirect our gaze to him? Uh, would you give us ears that are attentive so that we would pay much closer attention and therefore not drift away, but hold fast to him? We ask this for his glory. Amen. And we have been asking the past couple of weeks, who do you go to for help when you need help? And I guess over time you learn who can help you, who are the helpers to go to, because they have two qualities about them. Uh, firstly, they're willing to help. They care to help. And the second is that they are able to help. They can help. And we know that uh, somebody to be an effective helper needs to be both of those. It's uh, useless to be able to help but not willing to help. It's useless to be willing to help but not able. You need to be both at the same time. And we saw two weeks ago that Jesus is able to help. Uh, I beg your pardon, that he is willing to help, that he cares, that he is sympathetic, that we can approach him, that we can come confidently before his throne of grace, knowing that his posture is one of gentleness. It is one that is ready to give mercy, to give grace, to give help in our time of need. He is sympathetic, he is willing, and he cares. I guess all of this kind of discussion about who do you go to for help presupposes that you know that you need help. Somebody who is willing to help and able to help is still useless to us if we don't know that we need help, because then we would never go to them. Uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, if, you, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, then maybe that surprises you. The idea that you need help to know God. Well, maybe this morning you can engage with that. See what you make of that. Because the Bible says that you do. All of us on our own, we're, we're in trouble with God. We need a priest to make it possible for us to live with God. Um, if you are a Christian, then by definition you, you are somebody who knows that you need help. You've come to Jesus for help. But maybe you're asking yourself the question, well, what precisely now that I am a Christian is God's ongoing help for the journey. When I'm being tempted, what is his help? When I'm being targeted or persecuted, what is his help? When I'm tired and worn out in the journey, when I'm running at overwhelmed joy, calm and focus are hard to come by and it is hard to hold on to him. Uh, the reader that our writers addressing 
Well, they knew that they needed help. Uh, they needed help to relate to God. They knew that. Uh, they knew that on their own they were helpless. They were not able to deal with the gap between them and God. And God had told them that uh, there was a place where they could find help. Their helpers were the Levitical priesthood. It was a God-designated tribe, one of the tribes within the Twelve of Israel, dedicated to serving in the temple. And they were mediators, they were go-betweens, offering sacrifices on behalf of a sinful people to a holy God in order to make that relationship possible. So chapter 5, verse 1 said that they were there to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so here's the conflict that is kind of arising in the flow of this sermon that is called Hebrews, because the writer's been laying a claim. Uh, yes, you do need a priest to help you to relate to God, but I have another priest for you. Uh, via a quote from Psalm 110, he's dropped it in a few times. It's there in chapter 5, verse 6. It's in chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 20, prior to our passage this morning, uh, he's been dropping in this truth uh, that there is one who has been designated to be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. And that raises the conflict uh, for the listeners who were mostly Jewish background Christians. Uh, you're asking us to go for help not to the God-ordained Levitical priesthood who have been helping us for over a thousand years, but instead you're telling us to go to a new priest who frankly comes without credentials and who seems to us to be illegitimate. And his answer, in a nutshell, is yes, that's precisely what I'm asking you to do because he can help you. When you're tempted, when you're targeted, when you're tired, he can help you, and the Levites can't. And so first up, if you're following on the handouts, there is a whole new, old type of priest. The first question uh, that we should be asking is, who is Melchizedek? And the people back then would have been asking that same question as them, as that as well. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, evidently, uh, he's two things. He's a king, and then he is a priest. He's a priest of God Most High. And chapter uh, 7, verse 4 to 10, uh, bigger pardon, uh, 7 verse uh, 1 to 10, draw out a couple of things about Melchizedek from Genesis 14, which is the only other place in the Bible that we meet him other than Hebrews. Uh, two important things about him. Firstly, he's eternal. So scan down to verse 3. We're told he is without father or mother or genealogy. Uh, that only adds to the mystery about Melchizedek, doesn't it? It kind of places him with a timeless quality. At first you might think, well, if you're trying to establish credentials for this guy as to why we should go to him, well, then you're going about it the wrong way because in that culture you are your ancestors. Um, who you are is answered by where and who you come from. And verse 3 says Melchizedek has none of that. He is without father, without mother or genealogy. He comes from nowhere and he goes nowhere. He has no roots. And yet, actually it has the opposite effect of undermining his credibility. Uh, because if you don't have a family tree, well, here are the people who you come after, 
and here are the people who come after you, and so we're kind of boxing you in. Well, when you don't have that, it creates a sense of timelessness, a sense of being eternal. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The hint is that there is a smell of eternality about him. He is an eternal priest, which differentiates him from the other priests. We're told later on in verse 23, they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They had a finite time. They were mortal, but Melchizedek, verse 8, well, there is a smell of eternity, of immortality about him. He lives, which is why we're told he is like the Son of God. Because we saw it back in chapter 1, didn't we? Uh, Jesus described as the eternal Son. Uh, language that was used about him. He, though the heavens and the earth will perish, he will remain. Uh, he is the one whose years will have no end. He is the eternal Son. And Melchizedek is something like the eternal Son of God in that regard. He's eternal, but he's also superior, which is to say he surpasses all others. So Abraham is on the way back from defeating a few kings, and he was doing that in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And he meets Melchizedek, who's also described as a king. Verse 1, Melchi means king, and Zedek means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. Uh, he's also the king of peace. That's what the word Salem means. And Salem there is possibly a reference to the place that would later on become Jerusalem. Uh, and that is superior is apparent from how Abraham reacts to him when he meets Melchizedek. Uh, Abraham, who's the great patriarch, the great father Abraham, uh, the one who is the custodian of God's covenant to redeem the world, he is the father of the people of God. Well, when that great Abraham meets Melchizedek, he bows and scrapes as one who knows that he is in the presence of someone great. He pays him a tithe, a tribute to recognize him as someone clearly superior. And that's evident the other way around too because of what Melchizedek does to Abraham, which is that he blesses him. He confers a blessing on him, which is something that only a superior would do for an inferior. And so because he's superior to Abraham, he is also superior, the writer goes on to say, to the Levitical priests. Uh, which is what verse 9 and 10 uh, are getting at. Because Aaron or, or Levi, who's the head of the Levite tribe, well, he was the great-great-grandson of Abraham. And so, in effect, as Abraham is bowing down to Melchizedek, in effect, his, his little descendants are doing the same. The one who received tribute, who received a tenth, which is what you paid to the Levitical priests for their support, effectively, they are paying a tenth through Abraham to Melchizedek. And so we get the point. Melchizedek is an eternal, superior type of priest. But then the pushback might be from the readers of Hebrews. Well, if Melchizedek was that amazing, and I guess we see he does seem to be from Genesis and this interaction with Abraham, well, why later on in Leviticus does God designate the tribe of Levi as the priests to help us to know God? And fair enough, it's a fair question. But the passage goes on because God has more to say on this. To say that later on, 
there was an upgrade on your priests, which is our second point. Now, verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, Here's what's going on with that. Whilst it is true that Melchizedek came before the Levitical priesthood, it seemed like he was being superseded by the Levites. Well, actually, later on, a promise is recorded, and it's recorded in Psalm 110, that a Melchizedek-type priest, you know the old one? Well, a, a new one would arise in his order to replace the Levites. Uh, Psalm 110, it's worth just flicking back to it. Um, It's been an anchor psalm. If you turn back to it now, then it's been an anchor psalm in the the book of Hebrews. Uh, The writer goes to it again and again. And the first verse of the psalm is intriguing. Uh, The Lord, Psalm 110 verse 1, uh, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, It's intriguing when you realize, and it tells you right at the start of the psalm, who is writing Psalm 110. Uh, It is written by the great king David. Uh, David, who outranked everyone other than God. And yet David is saying that the Lord, meaning God, says to my Lord, introducing another character, uh, someone who is other than God, but who outranks me because he's my Lord and master. And so Psalm 110 is recognized as what is called a messianic psalm because it is promising this character, a messiah, God's king, who would bring God's rule, who is so great that even the great King David calls him Lord. That is the weight that uh, is with verse 1. But then in verse 4 of Psalm 110, he goes on. This is where God addresses his messiah. And he says about him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his name. You, you meaning you, my Messiah King, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The great Messiah King who is to come, who is a type of Melchizedek, the one that Abraham and Levi bowed down to, well, he is also a priest, but not a Levitical one. He is of a different order or type, a Melchizedek type. And the reason that he's an upgrade is not merely because of who he is, but because of what he is able to achieve, which is where verse 11 started us. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? Uh, You need an upgrade because the first set of priests didn't, well, they didn't deliver. They weren't able to deliver. The, The help that they offered was temporary at best. Perfection was not attainable through them. And uh, we've already seen that when the writer of Hebrews uses that word perfection, he's not talking about moral perfection. He is talking about a complete, a perfected relationship with God. And the Levites were not able to deliver on that. Verse 19, we're, we're told of the law which the Levites, uh, of which the Levites were the administrators. Made, it made no one perfect. O- obeying the law Uh, Even faithfully, with the priests offering the sacrifices on your behalf, uh, it brought no one perfect relationship with God because no one could keep it. 
perfection was still needed. The Levites couldn't offer it, and so hence the upgrade. Another type of priest who is still to come. He comes after the old to supersede the old. And he is not merely a priest, but a king priest. He is a Messiah priest. And so therefore, thirdly, Jesus is this better type of priest. We've set up the scene, the promise of a new type of priest that is needed and that is going to come, says the Psalm 110, looking forward. And now the claim of the writer of the Hebrews is, Jesus is that type of priest. Verse 15 is about the arrival of Jesus to be the final Melchizedek. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises who is in the likeness of Melchizedek who is like Melchizedek, but actually exceeds Melchizedek. Melchizedek is to Jesus as a shadow is to the real person. Like, but not the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. And his tie to Melchizedek is not one of bodily descent. He's not descended, you know, as the the son of the father, etc. He's not a blood descendant like the Levites. But much more importantly, he has in him the DNA of immortality. Verse 16, Jesus has become a priest, not because of bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? I remember we said uh, Melchizedek had the smell of eternity about him. Well, Jesus has that reality about him because his life was indestructible. Yes, he laid down his life, but only to take it up again because death could not hold him. The resurrection of Jesus makes him the forever priest. Uh, The old priest couldn't bring perfection because they didn't endure. Verse 23 says they kept on dying off. And so now that we have a new priest, uh, he has come with an indestructible life. Well, it means two things. It means, verse 18, that the old system has been set aside. That word there means made redundant or obsolete. It has been declared obsolete, like a a piece of old technology. I was talking to somebody um, yesterday who was lamenting, because he plays Minecraft, that his laptop is six, seven years old, and so it's just, it's really, really slow. Uh, I told him about my ZX Spectrum 48K, which was my first computer in the early 80s, um, we still have it. it. It looks really good. It's black and it's got rubber chiclet keys and a nice little rainbow on the side. It was well cared for, lots of happy memories. But it has 48K kilobytes of memory. And my laptop today has more than 330,000 times more RAM than that. Um, and it, it ran off cassettes, not even floppy disk drives. Most of you don't even know what a floppy disk drive is. Um, But before floppy disks, there were cassettes to load your games on or or, or to save stuff on. Uh, So right now, it is no good for anything. Uh, You wouldn't even be able to load a single decent resolution photo on it. And so like my ZX Spectrum, which I think is sitting somewhere in the attic, the old priesthood has been set aside. It has been declared obsolete. And secondly, therefore... Uh, We therefore, verse 19, we have a better hope. The old one has been declared obsolete because we now have a better hope through which we draw near to God because our upgraded priest has brought that perfection 
complete relationship with God. And so fourthly, and this is where I want to spend a chunk of time, just reflecting on what that means for us. Uh, Jesus can help you because he lives. You know, what does Jesus being the ultimate priest really mean for us? Well, in the whole section, um, which spans, I think, from verse 14 of chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 10, we're dealing with this idea of Jesus being a better priest. And, um, and the gateway into the section and the gateway that leads us out of the section um, give us the application or what it means, what the take-home is of Jesus being our better priest. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16, we've seen where it says that since we therefore, ha- since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, hold fast to our confession with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the gateway into the section about priesthood. The gateway out of it is chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, that word again, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, open for us through the curtain, which is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed. Uh, Because we have a great high priest in Jesus, we can draw near to God with confidence, knowing that he is gentle, he is sympathetic. We will find mercy and receive grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus does the job of a priest. He sorts out the trouble that we cannot sort out. He helps us in a way that we cannot help ourselves. So we are really able to know God and to secure a place before God. But what you're asking when you're in a bigger section, and now we've just got chapter 7 in view, is to ask what specific addition does chapter 7 make for us? What is the unique contribution of this chapter that will grow our confidence to draw near, knowing that we will find help from him when we're tempted or targeted or tired? And the specific help is his foreverness. Uh, The eternal son has become our eternal priest. And his eternity is guaranteed because of his appointment by God. Uh, Chapter uh, 7, verse 20 to 21, they make the point that Jesus, um, uniquely no other priest had had this. Jesus was appointed by an oath from God. And we saw... uh, the past couple of weeks, we saw that God doesn't make an oath for his benefit to remind him, make sure you keep your promises. God doesn't need that. He makes an oath. He swears an oath on the back of a promise to help us to realize that he will never not keep his promise. It is to reassure us. And he has done that in his appointment of Jesus as the high priest because he says in verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind lest you think he will. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. The priest has been appointed and it is Jesus. And more than that, I am swearing on oath so that you know that he will forever be that priest. And we know that, don't we? We know that he's able to be a forever priest because he is the forever son. He is the eternal son. 
And the proof of that was his resurrection. Even when he was killed, when he looked to be mortal, that's quite a, you know, a bit of evidence kind of pushing you in the direction of thinking somebody's mortal when you see them getting killed and they're dead. And yet God raised him up. Death could not hold him. And that foreverness, that, that eternity of Jesus, well, it's so precious for us to latch onto. It, it's all over this passage. And we've kind of been seeing it, but when you accumulate it, you feel the force of it. So it's there in verse 3 that um, the one who, of which he is, uh, who was a type of Jesus, well, he has no father or mother, no beginning of days, nor end of life. He continues a priest forever. It's there in verse 8, as opposed to a mortal man, well, it is testified that he lives. Verse 16, that phrase, uh, that he is uh, one who has the power of an indestructible life. And Psalm 110 is being dropped in all the time. You are a priest forever, like verse 17. The Lord has sworn, he won't change his mind, you are a priest forever. And then verse 23, uh, the former priests died, but Jesus... Well, he's permanent. He lives forever. And verse 25 sums it all up for us. He always lives. And so his priesthood for you is guaranteed because he always lives. That guarantee is one that you you can take to the bank. It, It will never let you down. I came across a website the other day. It's actually a Christian company. They make leather goods. They're based in North America. And they are, uh, I think it's called a Saddleback Leather Company. I was chatting to Dave about them. Uh, But their key selling point is the durability of these leather bags. They're pretty much indestructible. Um, They offer a 100-year guarantee on any aspect of the product. I love their catchphrase, (laughs) which is this. You pay a lot of money for this thing, but here's the catchphrase that makes it worth it. Um, They will fight over it when you're dead. (laughs) It will outlast you, is the point. And Jesus, well, he, he will outlast everything. He is your forever priest. He always lives. And therefore, he can always help you. Because he always lives. Which is what verse 25 captures for us. And this is the invitation this morning. It is to plant verse 25 deep in our hearts. And verse 24 leads into it. Verse 24 Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost. That's a a great phrase as well. And your footnote in your Bibles opens up, I guess, the extent of what that means. The footnote says uh, it means completely or at all times. Uh, And those are two different things, aren't they? Uh, Completely has to do with the quality of something, the breadth and the depth. He can save us in every way. And at all times has to do with duration. He can save us at all times. And the word that could be translated in either of those ways, and the author has done that deliberately, so that we have both of those in mind when it comes to Jesus. There there will never be a time and there will never be a situation where he cannot help you. Uh, The span of Jesus saving help is in every way for all time. 
uh, in every way. Well, he can bring us into the presence of God. He can secure your place before God. Because of him, we can draw near and fix the trouble that we have in knowing God because he is interceding for us now. He is praying for us on the basis of his death, pointing to the hands and saying to God, I've got them covered so that they are completely secure with you. And therefore they are able to draw near in confidence, not on the basis of themselves, but on the basis of what I have done. He can save us like that. And that's not the only thing that he's praying for. He is also sustaining us in our living for God. Remember uh, two weeks ago we spoke of the fact that Jesus has gone through the heavens. Um, he has descended and therefore he's experienced our weakness. And therefore he is able to sympathize with us, to be gentle with us because he understands us. He knows our trials and temptations, what it is to be targeted, what it is to be tired. And so now Jesus has turned that knowledge gained by real lived experience into prayer for us. We saw in Romans uh, chapter 8 when we were in our series in Romans 5 to 8 that the Spirit is praying for us with groans that, that, that transcend words, praying in line with the will of God to get us to the end, to work all things for good along the way, to make us, to get us to the end. And here we see that Jesus as well is interceding for us, for our temptations, when we're being targeted, when we're weary. And he prays that we would keep going and trusting and living for him. He secures us and he sustains us. And I, and I bet most of us don't even realize that or, or live cognizant of that. That actually the reason today that you are Christian is because Jesus has been praying for you. All of the prayers that the Spirit of Jesus and the Lord Jesus have been praying. Jesus, our priest, he intercedes for us. He saves us. He secures our place before God. And he sustains us in living for God. And the point is that he is able to do this forever. He always lives to intercede. He will never stop praying. And that is why he can help you in every way for all time. He will always be securing us before God, always be sustaining us before God. There will never be a time or situation where Jesus cannot save us because he always lives. Do you know what that means? He'll never be deposed from his rule. He will never die. He will never be replaced. He cannot be moved. He is God's guaranteed forever priest. And so he will save you forever, today, tomorrow, for eternity. He will help us which helps us, I think, this morning, if we're Christian, to be really clear on how it is, on what the help is that Jesus offers us. Now, the help that he gives us uh, is not necessarily immediately to remove from us or remove us from the temptation or the trial or the targeting or the tiredness, but to be near us through it. Uh, that was exactly the help that the Lord Jesus promised. When he was about to leave his disciples, they were fearful of being left alone. He's ascending to go up again through the heavens to the right hand of God. And Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 for his disciples and for us today, it's striking that, that he specifically says, he doesn't just assume it, he, he names it. I, he says what I'm not praying. I'm not praying 
that you would remove them for, from this world for their protection. Remove them from the trials and the temptations and, and the tiredness. But instead to guard them through it by keeping them in him right to the end. And so you may, you may be tempted to say, well, what, how, if he's not removing the temptation and the targeting the time, how is he helping them then? And the answer is by being with them as close as the breath in their lungs. Yeah, he promised them the Spirit, who we saw is called the Helper. And listen to how the Helper will help in John 14. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And our survival instinct so often means that, that we're so focused on what we want to be rescued from that we forget that in the Bible it is mostly to do with what we're being rescued for. And that if the for is the, precious, the most precious part, it is what keeps us going. We say for intimacy with him, with connection with him, secure and sustained in living for him. Draw near to him. We forget that sometimes the Lord in his providence will decide not to rescue us from the difficult circumstances because that is precisely what will help us to register that we are with him and he is with us. And if we get that, well, that would change the faith prayer that we pray. We would stop praying so much, is he helping me right now? Because he is helping me, guaranteed forever. The question will become, how is he helping me now? Lord, would you show me that? Well, I see that in the fact that you are securing me and you are sustaining me. The way to know experientially, well, it is to draw near to him. If he is with me, then my invitation is to draw near to him, wanting mercy and grace, which is to say I come to him on his own terms, that I will find help in my time of need, because I will find him. The original readers of this letter would have been tempted to go back, we said, to the old Levitical priests, and the obvious message is, don't, because they cannot help you. Stay with Jesus. He is your guaranteed forever priest. I take it this morning we're not in danger of going back to the Levitical priests. Let me know if that's a thing for you and we can talk about that. Um, but there are other priests around today. The people that we would be tempted to go to. A friend of mine preached uh, on this passage and he put it in this way. A priest is anyone who becomes necessary for my relationship with God. A person that I need to be closer to God. And he spoke about four possible types of priests. There's the, the high church or the Catholic priest, the ordained person. Somehow that person is closer to God than what I am. And so they're able to perform rituals that can bring me to God, like communion. And so I need him. I need what he can do for me. Uh, there's the worship type priest. And so something, uh, an experience of praising God in song, that, that worshipping in song brings me into God's presence in a special way, one that I can't get anywhere else. And so I need the worship leader to invoke God's presence. 
or maybe the inspirational priest, that person in your life who's, who's solid, uh, de dependable, mature in their Christian faith, they become a reference point for you, maybe they're full of energy and, and life of Jesus, and somehow being around them makes you feel closer to God. And you start to think, I, I need you around to help me keep going, to help me stay close to God. And then, fourthly, uh, there's even the Bible-teaching priest, the person who teaches the Bible in a particular way, that I find I'm closer to God, and I need that person, and, and other people's teaching won't do. And we need to be careful. Uh, all of those things are good. Communion and singing and encouragements and teaching, we're experiencing those even in a worship service on a Sunday. All of them are good. They do, in a way, all help our relationship with God, but they help us only in so far as they remind us or they point us to Jesus, who is our high priest. The danger is always that we get too attached to another person and we make them into a priest and what they do for me becomes necessary for me to be close to God. And of course, none of us uh, can help each other to do that. No one else can do that for you. And maybe they offer a feeling or experience, but they cannot give you access to God. And when they fail, which they must, or they offer a temporary fix, which is the best that they can do, well, then they leave us disillusioned and feeling deserted by God, when in fact we were not really drawing near to God in the first place. But Jesus is a guaranteed forever priest who always lives, and he provides free and secure and confident access to God. He is the only one who can sort out your troubles with God. And so if you're Christian, don't go anywhere else. Go directly to him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great high priest. We thank you that you have journeyed through the heavens, that you came down, that you might go through in your own personal experience some of what we do, facing temptations and therefore able to sympathize with us. Thank you that you care that you know us, that you have made yourself approachable. But thank you, Lord, that you did not remain here, that you, because of the power of indestructible life, you were raised from the death, raised from the dead. Death could not hold you. And that you ascended to the heavens and that you therefore are exalted now above the heavens. And therefore you are strong and able to represent us. Thank you that we can go to you and draw near to you. Thank you that you are able to secure and sustain us before the Heavenly Father. And grant us that confidence this week to draw near to you, knowing that we will receive help, because we will find you. Amen.